Uh, we are going to do another word that will change your life uh, this week. Um, and so today's word is a four-letter word, help. help, which to some of us feels like a four-letter word, doesn't it? Um, so uh, my wife and I bought a home about, uh, I don't know, like two years ago. And uh, the deal was like, I'm, so I'm the chef, I'm the cook in our home. I, I like to, I'm really manly and I like to bake as my hobby. So uh, b- baking and watches, my two hobbies. So really cool alert right here anyway. Uh, and so uh, the home we moved into, uh, we wanted, it was electric. We wanted to try and get gas. We didn't have money. Uh, at the time when we moved in to get gas, because if you ever bought a home, you know, like, you're like, wow, I've never felt so poor in my entire life and right, right now. So we decided when we got our tax refund the next year, we'd look into getting gas, uh, you know, ga- like it was just going to be an enormous uh, problem to get gas run to our home. So we ended up, so the deal was, okay, since we can't get a gas range in our home, which is clearly superior to electric, then I'm going to get a really nice electric stove. So I went, I did my thing, I like researched on like all these internet sites and like, so we got this really nice, like sleek looking, cool electric range and it's got a double oven in it, which is really nice, we use it all the time. It's a smart oven, so I have like an app on my phone I can control it from, which is pretty sweet. Uh, like, it, like no one knows how to use it except me. My mom is like so confused when she comes to visit. So uh, anyway, so it's pretty nice. And the problem was our old oven was uh, this old white oven. It had like the old, if you remember, like the, like the cast iron grates on it, you know, the coils on it and everything. And it was like white and it just did not go with stuff uh, in our kitchen. And when we got the new oven, it had the oven hood on it. You know, those are two separate pieces. So it looked kind of weird because we had like the oven, which is like sleek and cool and new looking. And then we had this old white oven hood and like white is the worst color for a kitchen appliance because it like gets dirty it's like man there is like soup from 20 years ago that i'm sure is like crusted on here you know anyway so i bought the new oven hood that went with this it was actually made specially for this oven and so i had researched online and again homeowners understand this right you're always playing the game of like can I do this on my own? Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? And with me, it's usually a bad idea, but we do it anyway. And so I like researched a bunch of people online on YouTube to see, can I do this? And I decided I could. So on one Saturday, I just like, I go in, I rip out the oven hood. And immediately as I did so, I was like, I have made the worst decision in my entire life because I took out this oven hood, and again, not to get like too technical, but like the way your oven hood works, right, it's powered, so it's normally like plugged into, you know, an outlet, and so I expected when I took the hood out, there was going to be an outlet behind the hood that it was plugged into. Well, unfortunately, whoever installed this oven hood had just hardwired it directly into our, uh, into our like wall when the house was built, essentially. Yeah, James is shaking his head, he knows what I'm talking about. And so like, it, first off, it looked like there had been a serial killer because they literally just like ripped a hole in the wall. Like it wasn't, it wasn't nice or like it literally looked like someone was trying to like break out or something. But I took it out and when I did not see an outlet there, I was like, oh shoot, this is, I actually didn't say shoot. I said another word, which we won't say here. Uh, they, it, like, I was like, this is, oh my gosh. And so now I'm thinking like, well, 
how long do I think I can stay married with this hole in my wall? You know, like how long before my wife leaves me? You know, like this hole isn't that bad. Like I can see it. So I call my I call up my pal Alex Bayo to come over and save my save my keister. And so Alex comes over and wastes eight hours of his life. Because we like come in, and we're like, oh, okay, this is not as easy as we thought. So then we're like, untie this thing. The whole time we're like worried we're going to get electrocuted. We, how many times do we go to Home Depot that day? Like three times probably, something like that. So we finally get the thing installed. Like we get the hood installed, but then we figure out we don't have the right venting to go up out of the hood. So now we have to go to Home Depot. So like I'm in, and anytime you walk into Lowe's or Home Depot, you're like, I have no idea what I'm looking at right now, right? And like, I'm looking at a bunch of oven vent things, you know, and like, I've never been so concerned about these in my life, you know? So I'm like on the phone with Alex, like, do we need seven sixteenths it? You know, like whatever you're trying to ask all these questions and trying to figure out. And so then we like get back and you got to install this, this hard inflexible steel into a tiny little cabinet that conveniently has the separation of the two cabinets right where you need to put the oven vent into, you know? So we're yelling. I'm sure my wife is like, oh my gosh, this is, I'm never going to let him get a nice thing again. Like, we're never going to do this again. So anyway, we finally got installed. I'm not entirely convinced we installed it properly. I don't think the vent actually vents out to anywhere, but it's there. There's no hole in our wall. Life is good. Like, I'm happy with that. I, I accept that. I receive that. You know, that's good, okay? And I remember thinking, like, man, I'm going to die right now. Like, this is the worst like, if you're from the Midwest, you get this. If you're not from the Midwest, maybe this is not your, not your trauma that you have. But, like, in the Midwest, like, the worst thing you can do is bother someone. That's, like, the greatest. Murder is below bothering someone in the Midwest economy of sin, okay? And, like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, my friend Alex, he had to come, and his wife came over, too, and she just, like, sat here for eight hours and, like, did nothing with their lives. And, like, oh, my gosh, I feel so terrible, and, like, I just felt awful about it, you know, but now I've gotten over Now I'm talking to you about it, so I've clearly I've gotten over it. I've done ther extensive therapy to get over it. But, like, I, like that, when I, just, when I see that hood, I think, oh, man, that was so nice of Alex and Melissa to do that. And I think, I don't know if this actually works or not, but that'll be the next homeowner's problem, not my problem. So, anyway, help is really, really important for us. Now, um, here's kind of story of life, right? We enter the world and we need all kinds of help. No, no baby has ever been born that was an independent being, right? Like no baby ever, like this is my stupid joke. Anytime someone has a baby, I'm like, oh yeah, well, does the baby have a job yet? You know, like, you know, like, no, of course not, idiot, right? Because it's a baby, right? Babies can't go to the bathroom on their own. Babies can't cook on their own. Babies can't feed, right? They're, they come in the world needing total help. Now, I hate to be morbid here, you're going to leave this world, and hopefully, uh, assuming that you don't leave in a traumatic way, you're also going to need a lot of help going out, right? Some of you are walking through this right now or have walked through this where you've got someone in your family and things that used to be really easy for them that they could do on their own, they now need help, and they don't want to admit that they need help, but you know that, they, right? And it's just kind of this tug-of-war match for however long it goes on, right, until you pass away, right? And like, like we, we leave this world le needing help, okay? Now, here's my question. If you enter the world needing help, you leave the world needing help, why do we think that in the middle we don't need help? 
right? Why is it that in the middle, I think, well, aside from like traumatic events, you know, aside from like the, like my house is on fire, you know, like there's some extreme personal tragedy. Why is it that we think in the middle, I'm somehow exempt from requiring help through all of this, right? And I think the answer is, well, we actually aren't. We just, as Americans, and, you know, independence and do it myself, and I got this, right? That's such a part of our culture that we think we don't need help or we, we refuse to receive help when we actually do. And, and, and so that's why this word help, I think, becomes so enormously important for us to think about today. Now, I thought about my life and I thought about the reasons why I don't ask for help. I don't know if any of these resonate with you. Uh, maybe you have other ones. Um, but here's kind of what I came up with with reasons why I don't ask for help. Reason number one I don't ask for help is because it wounds my ego, right? It feels embarrassing. I can't do this on my own. It feel like I feel like I should know how to do this by now, right? I, I'm, I'm embarrassed I need to ask for help with this, right? Um, I couldn't tie my shoes until the third grade. And me telling you I couldn't tie my shoes until the third grade is a real step forward for me, right? Because that was wounding to my ego, even as a second grader, you know, and the delicate social dynamics of second grade, you know? Like, that, that it wounds our ego to say we can't do things. I, I heard something like the average man spends 57 hours of his life driving around having no idea where he's going but not asking for directions, okay? So men in your life, we spend two and a half days of our entire life just driving with aimlessly with no purpose but too proud to ask for help. Second thing, uh, why we don't ask for help, why I don't ask for help is um, because I, I, don't, I, I lack self-worth, okay? Now this is kind of a little psychological here. But let me go back to this self-worth thing, okay? Um, one of the things that God is very clear on in Scripture that he wants us to understand in his word to us is that you, because you are created in the image of God, have inherent self-worth. You are made in God's image. And what that means is when you don't do anything or bring anything to the table or make things inconvenient or whatever, you still have worth because you are God's child, Okay? You are God's created child. Now, the right reason this comes into the self-worth thing is because when we lack self-worth, here's the message that we kind of tell ourselves around asking for help, is we think, oh, unless I am offering something in return, I can't ask for help. Because what I'm kind of saying is, just on my own, I'm not worth helping. I'm not worth helping, right? I don't have any worth, right? That's why I'm afraid to be a bother to you. That's why whatever the reasoning is, right? When we lack kind of that self-worth, God has imbued into us, God has put into us, okay, that we, we don't ask for help because we don't think deep down we're worth helping, which I'm just here to tell you is a lie from the pit of hell, so you free yourself from that. Anyway, third thing, we don't feel like we meet the threshold, okay? We, we, we fall below the help threshold, uh, if I can kind of put it that way. Um, we had some friends who very kindly paid for us to have our house cleaned a few months ago. And wouldn't you know it, before the cleaners get there, what are we doing? We're picking up and cleaning the house, right? Because we're thinking, oh my gosh, we cannot let the professional cleaners whose job it is to clean the house see our house unpicked up this way. What a terrible thing, right? Now, 
how sick is that, right? I am literally paying you to clean my home. How, like, if anything, I should be just throwing trash around anyway because I'm paying for it, right? Like, this is my thing, right? But no, we're like, oh, no, we got to have the ha- we gotta have the table set. We got, you know, whatever. Yeah, we, can't, we can't let them know that we, we have messes in our home, you know, which I'm sure they totally figured out when they're like, wow, no one's dusted here for a decade, you know? Like, they, they are not surprised, okay? But if you do, you, we do this, right? We decide it's only acceptable for me to need X level of help, and anything that exceeds X level of help is just shameful, right? And so sometimes we need help, and we sense we need a lot of help, but we feel like, oh, it's like so embarrassing because we're below the threshold, whatever you define that as, and so I can't ask for help until I get up there, okay? Let me just kind of make a spiritual observation, then we'll move on. This kept me from following Jesus for years in my life because I thought I need to get my life up to a certain standard and then I'll ask Jesus to come in and help me. When Jesus eventually showed me, Wes, your life is never going to be at the proper standard. So you should just ask me in right now, okay? So I'm just here to tell you that, okay? If that's your thing, you're sadly mistaken. Last reason. Sometimes we don't ask for help because we don't know who to ask. Right? We come up against a problem. We aren't equipped with it. We aren't connected to the right people. We're trying to do something that no one else in our family's done or our family has always done really, really poorly. And so we just don't know who to ask. We don't know where to go, which means we do one of two things. We either don't ask for help or we do something even worse. We ask the internet, right? Which never works out well for anyone, right? And so we kind of, again, case in point, me trying to install that oven hood thing, right? <laughs> We don't know who to ask, so we're, we, like, we just don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We don't know all that kind of stuff, right? Maybe you have some more reasons why you don't ask for help. I don't know. Here's the lesson I want us to learn today, though, is that asking for help is absolutely foundational. It's fundamental to the way of Jesus. You cannot walk on the way of Jesus and not ask for help. The way that we become followers of Jesus is we go, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. I'm I'm beyond repair. I need some help, right? I need to ask you into my life, right? I need, Jesus, I'm struggling with whatever. Hey, I've got a spending problem. I got a pornography problem. I got a, I got a always angry all the time problem. I got a, I work too much problem. I got a lack of self-work, whatever it is, right? How's that change? Well, Philippians 2 says, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose, right? That sounds to me like what God is saying is, I need you to ask me for some help. Like, I'm just waiting on you to ask me for help. Asking for help is foundational to the way of Jesus. If we do not ask for help, we are living out of alignment with Jesus. And (laughs) my spiritual diagnosis as a professional Christian is, When you live out of alignment with Jesus, that never goes well for anyone. That doesn't go well for you, doesn't go well for the people attached to you, doesn't go well for anyone, right? So we need to learn how to ask for help. So today, we're going to read a story of Jesus' first ever miracle of him asking for help. It comes from a gospel written by a guy named John. John was one of Jesus' followers. He's one of his 12 disciples. John was probably right here as the events we're reading about today happened, okay? So John, he's got some perspective that's unique that we can offer. Even if you're not sure you believe in Jesus, even if you're not sure you believe the Bible is God's word, surely we can all agree, hey, Jesus was a pretty influential dude, and it would be wise for me to listen 
to a firsthand account of the you know, most important person who ever lived, right? So if nothing else, you should listen for that reason. Anyway, John chapter 2, here's what John writes for us. He says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Okay, a wedding in the ancient days was not like a, a couple hour event. This was, this was my nightmare. It was like a week-long social commitment. Okay, so like, I, like I, I'm the guy at the wedding. It's like, okay, we got two dances. We're out of here, you know, whatever. But this is like a whole week-long thing. It's a really huge deal. They'd normally have it, I think, at the groom's house is where it would normally, or the groom's family's house is where they'd normally have it. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Uh, next verse. We are told, da, 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 when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus, we're out of booze. This is a real big problem I want to let you know about. We are out of booze, Jesus, okay? And so Mary turns, she says this. Now, this is a really big deal, Okay. This is what we call the culture Jesus lived in and still in the Middle East today. is what we call an honor-shame culture, okay? Here in America, we don't like it when we get put to shame, right? We're always trying to save face, you know, like we don't want people to disrespect us or feel, you know, put down or anything. Like, honor-shame culture takes that dynamic and, like, it's on steroids. Like, for you to be publicly shamed... It, certainly something like we ran out of booze at the wedding that we were supposed to provide, you know, the food and drink for. Like, that's like the ultimate no-no, right? That's like ultimate shame. Like, I'm, this is social death for this family. They probably, they might lose their jobs. They would certainly never get hired. The family would always be wearing a scarlet letter, except, you know, instead of the A, it'd be a B for booze, you know, W for wine, you know. And so, they, like, this, they would just have no opportunities. They would have no, like, this is really, really bad, okay? We, we cannot, like, here if we go to a party and it's a cash bar, we get annoyed, right? We're like, oh, my gosh, I got to pay for my white Russian? This is so terrible, you know? Here, this is, like, really, really huge, okay? There are actually records in the ancient world of the, the bride's family would actually sue the groom's family at a wedding where they ran out of alcohol, like, and they would win, like, can you imagine that? Like, we went to the wedding, they were out of alcohol, so we're, I'm going to sue and get my money's worth, right? Like, that, that that would actually happen in the ancient world, okay? So, like, social death, they're now open to lawsuits, you know, like, all this kind of stuff, all because they ran out of wine, okay? I also love about this story, Jesus is going to, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to do his first miracle here. And what I love is this miracle is not like, oh, there, hey, Jesus, there's a paralyzed guy that really needs your help right now, you know? Oh, my gosh, Jesus, my daughter is on her deathbed, you know? Like, this is not, like, as bad as this is, but this is a what, this is a miracle involving, like, hey, Jesus, we need some more Chardonnay, you know? Like, that, like, which I just love because Jesus, you know, purview of the miracles that he does is a lot bigger than, you know, we might think, right? Like, there's not, like, some oh, this miracle isn't spiritual enough, you know, kind of threshold of God to work, right? So the story continues. Woman, Jesus says, which that sounds really disrespectful to us, but in the ancient world, that was kind of like the equivalent of ma'am, okay? So Jesus looks at his mom, he says, ma'am, which is kind of, we think, Jesus' way of saying, I know you're my mom, but you don't get any special treatment because you're my mom, okay? Like, you don't get, like, special savior access that no one else does, okay? Like, so he's kind of trying to, you know, set the right expectations for mom here, okay? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. 
My hour has not yet come. Now, in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus says, my hour, he's talking about his crucifixion. And what Jesus is saying is, Mom, if I do this miracle, we're kind of setting the events in motion. They're going to end at a cross. And I'm like, Mom, I just tell you, I'm not really looking forward to that, right? Like, I, like, I kind of like to take just a couple more days to not do that, right? But Jesus knows the minute he does this miracle, it's going to start to cause a ruckus. People are going to start to talk. Now, all of a sudden, you know, eventually Rome's going to find out. He's going to be in big trouble, right? He, he knows where this is going. And so he's kind of saying to mom, mom, I don't, like, I don't know if now's the time. I don't know if I'm ready for this. Can I, I just came to this wedding. I just wanted to drink and dance, mom. Like, that's all I wanted to do at this wedding. Is that okay? You know, Mary, here's this response. And she turns and Mary says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Okay. Um, so like, so even Jesus got the, because I told you so, you know, whatever, right? We don't know if Mary was kind of expecting for Jesus to do a miracle here or not. Um, it may be very possible, we're pretty sure that Joseph, her husband, had died by this point. Um, and so it may very well be possible that like Jesus is a firstborn son and like he was kind of used to being the one that looked out for mom all the time, you know? And so, so this very well may be just Mary kind of saying, hey, Jesus, you're smart. You, you're always resourceful. You always figure stuff out. Like you can do this, right? You know? So we have no idea what she's kind of expecting of her son right here. So the story continues on. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, so these big jars right here that we got. Uh, Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. This was not, okay, cool, Jesus. I'm just going to take these big stone jars behind the bar, and we'll just get the little, you know, tap thing, and we'll just fill them up. Nope, like this is first century, kids. Like, you got to remember, there, there's no running water, okay? So what this means is Jesus just turned to these servants at the wedding in a time of emergency when I imagine they kind of want to stay close to the wedding, and he said, okay, here's what I need you to do. You know that well on the other side of town? Um, I just want you to take a big bucket, and I want you to walk there in the hot Palestinian sun. I want you to load up your bucket. I want you to come back. And I want you to pour the water in there. And then just, uh, yeah, you know, do that another 4,000 times, you know, right? Like, like this is not, this, this, uh, this is one sentence, but in reality, this is hours of work, right? This is not, simple. This is not easy, okay? And I, get, I don't know what these servants are thinking. I know what I would be thinking. I would be thinking, this is stupid. This is the dumbest thing anyone, like, what's he going to do? Turn it to wine? You know, like, uh, like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Why am I doing this? And here's the great news, is even when I follow Jesus going, this might be the dumbest thing I've ever done, that's still faith that counts, right? Faith, like when we think of, oh man, that's a person of great faith, right? We always think of like, wow, she was like so just tuned into Jesus, you know, or what, like, oh, she had such a wonderful heart as she was doing this thing. I'm here to tell you, a lot of steps of faith in your life are going to go, I don't know about this. I'm not really sure about this. I don't think this is such a good idea, you know, or Jesus, this is so stupid. Why am I doing, you know, right? Like some of the steps of faith you're going to take and your life are going to look like that. And guess what? As long as your feet are moving in the right direction, that, that's the kind of faith that Jesus honors oftentimes in our lives that we see. So, story continues. Then he told the servants, now, okay, now you fill these jars, you know, now that you've toweled off because you're probably dripping with sweat. 
Now I want you to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Which is like, okay, now this is really stupid, Jesus. Okay, so now you want me to take this well water to my boss, who's like an experienced sommelier, and you want me to have him taste it and be impressed with it? Like, hang on, I, I'm going to need to update my resume on Indeed.com right now. Like, Jesus, I'm going to need to fix my, face, uh, my LinkedIn profile right now. You know, like, Jesus... Uh, like, if I'm one of these people, I'm getting ready to, like, okay, well, flipping burgers at McDonald's ain't that bad, you know? Like, I'm getting ready just to kind of pace myself for what's going to happen here, right? But, it, it kind of, again, the theme of faith, they did so, right? They, they did it anyway. So they took it over, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. Then he, the master of ceremonies, called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, right? Because everyone's drunk, right? They don't know any, right? PBR tastes a lot better when it's not the first PBR you had, right? Okay. Natty, <laughs> Natty Light, that's their whole business model right here. Anyway, but you have saved the best until now, Okay. He, like, this guy's amazed at what they've just done. When, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. End of the story, right? Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus does this incredible, wonderful thing. Now, I think in this story, we don't often think of it this way, but I think we can learn a couple valuable lessons about help here, and about asking for help, okay? So I want to give you four of them. Here's lesson one. Prayers for help don't need to be perfectly manicured. Jesus is not impressed by fancy prayers. Like, we, we are impressed by fancy prayers. I don't think Jesus is, okay? We don't think of it this way, but when Mary turns to Jesus and says, they're out of wine, that's the first prayer in the Gospel of John. Because, I mean, if prayer is just, I present a need to God, that's literally what Mary did. She was the first person to pray to Jesus in the Gospel of John. And the prayer was, I hope you're ready for this eloquent prayer, they're out of wine. That's it. Nothing fancy. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to raise a guy named Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and then Lazarus would go on to have a successful series of department stores in his second life after that. <laughs> no, okay, no one knows about Lazarus department stores. Anyway, that's probably too old. I apologize. I'm sure online, I know you guys were laughing at that really hard. Anyway, Jesus is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then Jesus is going to pray right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, I would think if I'm getting ready to resurrect someone, I'm breaking out the good stuff right there, right? Like this is where I'm going, Lord, I beseech thee through the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Jesus, uh, you know, like we're, we're breaking that out, right? We're adding some syllables. We're doing that, you know. He's got like the, the cloth. He towels himself off, you know, like this is going to be at least a seven paragraph prayer, you know, like, like we're bringing out the good stuff right now. Here's the prayer that Jesus prays. This is, sorry, Lord, this is the worst prayer ever. Like this is, this is not the prayer you would pray. Jesus looks up to heaven and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of everyone standing here that they may believe that you've sent me. And literally the next verse is, Lazarus, get up. So let's just recap that beautiful prayer. 
God, thanks for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I just wanted to let people know that you hear me. So when I do this miracle, they know it's not just me. It's you working through me. Let's go. What a crappy prayer, right? Like, like that's not a great, like, if, if someone, like, sometimes people are like, hey, Wes, like, can you pray at the hospital? We have a loved one that's dying or needs healing or whatever. Like, I don't think they would be happy if I went, okay, God, you know I hear me. I hope you raise Matilda up or if she dies, I mean, whatever. Amen. You know, like, like he would be like, I do not feel like I got my money's worth out of that prayer right there. Like, that did not feel good. So apparently, God is not moved by super eloquent prayers, right? Apparently, God cares a lot more about the heart that's behind the prayer than the words that are in the prayer, okay? Here's the lesson I just want you to hear here, is when you ask God or when you ask others for help, more words, more eloquence, more whatever is not, is not the answer. That's not in the equation. And if you're waiting on an answer from God, I'm here to tell you, God's probably not saying no to you because, oh, I just, need to, I just need the right words, right? God is not a slot machine. It's not, a, hey, let me pull, okay, that didn't work, so let me add a couple, you know, like, nope, that's not how this works, right? God is way better than that. He doesn't need you to jump through 7,000 hoops to get qualified, okay? Like this, he's not the city government, okay? God is way better than that. And we need to receive him as a father who loves to help his children, and when God doesn't offer the help I'm desiring in the way I'm desiring it, often that can be a cue for me to say, huh, I wonder if God is maybe doing something different here. Second thing, you don't get help unless you ask, okay? You, <laughs> you know, got to ask for it. James, Jesus' brother, said these words to us in James chapter 4. He said, you do not have because you do not ask God. Right now, if we just take this verse to heart, we would pray a lot differently, wouldn't we? There, we would pray about a lot more stuff. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, once said, if, again, if we're taking James and his word, which I think we should, Billy Graham once said, heaven is full of answers to prayers for which no one bothered to ask. Which to me is like the saddest thing in the world. And when I heard that verse and the Billy Graham quote, I kind of made a resolution in my heart right there. Like, God, if I'm not going to get something, I'll be darned if it's going to be because I didn't ask for it, right? Like, I'll be darned if it's because I just didn't say anything to you about it. Now, how true is this in our lives, right? You, we've all had a friend or a family member or someone we love and care about, and we find out later on they were like struggling through some terrible situation, and, and you heard about it, and you're like, I just wish you would have asked. I would have loved to help, right? If we feel that way about other people, why shouldn't we assume that the people in our lives who love and care about us don't feel the same way about us? And certainly, why wouldn't we think that God feels the same way about us? I'd love to help. I just want you to ask, right? I think a lot of times the reason God wants us to ask him before he grants an answer is because he wants us to make sure we know the answer came from him, not from us, right? There are some things in my life I've prayed about that I think God has said no to, not because he doesn't want to say yes to it, but because he knows, man, if I let this blessing come Wes's way, he, it's not going to be good for him, right? He's going to get a big head. He's going to whatever, right? And like, I, 
I want you to understand, I want you to connect the asking and my providing, right? That's a huge, huge, huge dynamic for us. Third thing about asking for help. God generally involves others in the helping process, okay? In this story, it wasn't just Jesus did a miracle. It was actually Mary asked Jesus if he could help. Jesus enlisted some servants to help him out, right? He involved, uh, like there was the master's ceremony, like there are other people involved in this miracle, okay? Um, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus, I'm sure, could have done his ministry very effectively and in a very wonderful way all by himself. He probably didn't need anyone's help, okay? But yet Jesus recruited 12 disciples to be his followers. In fact, he had a larger group of kind of 72 followers around him. But the point being, I think Jesus didn't do that because he needed help necessarily. I think he did that as a demonstration to us that oftentimes the way God works in this world and in our lives isn't zap, you know, that's, that's fixed, you know. Like my counselor Ken always says, man, Wes, wouldn't it be great if God would just snap his fingers and zap you to be fixed? I'm like, yes, Ken, that would be wonderful, you know. Why are we talking about this? That's not going to happen, you know. Anyway, oftentimes the way God works in our lives is through the ministry and service of others. I have a friend named Fred. Uh, Fred is like in his 80s. He's a super old, super wise guy and uh, like just lots of wisdom. And one time I was talking to Fred about an issue I was coming up against and it, like somehow we started talking about marriage and Fred made a comment to me that I'd never thought before. He's like, well, yeah, Wes, you know, when you get married, um, like you've kind of co-signed on the way that God is most often going to speak to you is just going to be through your wife for the rest of your life which I made sure not to tell my wife that information, right? Uh, but like I thought about that, I was like, yeah, you know what? That's true. If we do believe the Holy Spirit is at work in marriage, if we believe God ordains the act of marriage, right? Then, then part of what that means is when I sign up for marriage, what I'm signing up for is oftentimes the way God is going to speak to me is through my spouse, right? It's through other people, right? God enlists others as an example, as a picture of his help for us. And so what that means is, when I experience others helping me, I'm experiencing in part the help of God helping me. And what that also means is when I help others, I get a chance to be the help of God to another person. Part of the reason God gave us the church, there are many reasons, but I think one of the reasons is because we can't do our lives alone. We are designed, we need help, right? That's part of, that's part of what the picture of what we do here, not just on Sundays, but probably even more so through the rest of the week, right? That's part of the picture of what we're doing here, right? We, we are being, we are modeling the help of God for one another and receiving the help of God from one another, right? Asking for help is part of what that is. Here's the last thing. I think this lesson teaches us no help, no miracle, right? We don't know if Jesus walked into this wedding planning on doing a miracle or not. Now, I'm sure Jesus wasn't forced into it. You know, Jesus is a lot bigger than that. But we don't know if Jesus walked into this wedding knowing he was going to do a miracle or if it was kind of one of those things where it's like, hey, my mom brought this need to me and I kind of felt the urge to help or whatever, right? And so I did the miracle. But whatever the case is, right, um, oftentimes we don't experience a miracle in our lives until we are willing to open ourselves up to receive some help, okay? Um, 
I think about people who are like lifelong addicts. And when I talk to them about their story, they like invariably, it's always like, man, I could never imagine getting free from alcoholism or this dependency, right, without the help of my 12-step group or without the help of my church or without the help of this family member or without the help of, you know, some support group or a therapist or usually some combination of all of those things, right, being a, a part of my path, being a part of my story, right? Because if we want to see a miracle, we've got to receive the help. You know, when I think about my life, I feel like God's doing a work in my life. I was kind of telling a friend this week that I feel weird because I feel like I am changing, but like I'm not quite settled into the person that I think Jesus wants me to be in this season of my life. And so I just kind of feel weird. You know, I'm not quite settled in it yet, you know. But when I think about my story of how God has changed me, right, it is directly correlated to my openness, my willingness to ask and receive the help of others. And sometimes help I wasn't really wanting to receive from others, you know. I think about my wife and her involvement in that journey. I think about my counselor and his involvement in that journey. I think about my small group and their involvement in that journey. I think about, you know, just kind of chance encounters with people along my path who've been involved in this journey. I think about many of you who have been involved in this journey. I think about my family, you know, like I could go on and on and on, right? But the point is, I think the greatest miracle that God can do in our lives is the changing of the human heart because I've tried for 34 years to change West Blackburn and have done a very subpar job at changing West Blackburn, right? Um, but when we invite God, often through receiving the help of others, we see God do a work in us that we wouldn't see otherwise, okay? Um, in, our, in our lives, receiving help is often tantamount to receiving God, okay? This little four-layer word, it's scary to a lot of us. I get it because it feels vulnerable, right? Asking for help means acknowledging things aren't okay. Asking for help means humbling myself sometimes to say, hey, I need some help. I feel kind of small with this need or whatever it is, right? That's, hey, I get that, right? One of the beautiful things about help is when we ask for help, we also receive connection, right? Have you ever noticed that? That when when you, when you help someone or receive help from someone, there's kind of a unique bond that sort of forms. Um, I, you know, for a long time, I've been pastor for 12 years, and I think 11, 11 and a half of those years, um, I've worked for a church that didn't have a home, you know, like a permanent spot. And like, I'm always amazed that like, there was this guy at our last church named Mark Doyle. And like, Mark Doyle and I would never connect normally. He's like a pool repair guy, you know, so like definitely, you know, real hardworking blue collar dude, just like me, you know, baking. Uh, and so, but uh, Mark Doyle and I, we would set up, we had this kids area and we would like set up these plastic puzzle tile things. Cause it was like a hard, you know, concrete floor or whatever, or tile floor in there. And uh, yeah, so kids wouldn't like, you know, be dying as they're like crawling around on the floor and stuff. But like Mark and I, right, all I did was ask, hey, Mark, can you help me out with doing this, right? He would be there every week. We'd set up all these kids' rooms, all these spaces together. And like, it wasn't like, you know, as we're setting them up, we're like, so Mark, tell me about Jesus's work in your life this week, right? It was like, hey, dude, can you hand me that whatever, you know, I got, hey, hand me the X. I need to put the X over here or whatever it is, right? And yet there's this relationship that kind of got formed working shoulder to shoulder with one another. Because again, when help enters the picture, we often see relationships. Relationship. We see grace, we see change enter the picture as well. You can experience the power and the beauty of help if you'll ask, if you'll open yourself up to it. If that word help will not just be an like once a year occurrence, right? But it will actually become a recurring part of my life. We enter this world leaving help. 
we leave this world needing help, why should we think that in the middle that's going to be any different? Help is foundational to the way of Jesus. And if we want to be people who walk in the life that Jesus brings, what it means is we need to walk humbly receiving and being willing to ask for his help.